0: We begin today a uh, series where we're going to look at a number of prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament leading up to Christmas um, with Pastor Worley preaching out of the Gospels. And today we're going to look at Psalm chapter 2. So if you're there, read it with me now. Why do the nations rage, it begins, and the people's plot in vain, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Doesn't that just get you in the Christmas spirit? (laughs) Advent season is a time of hope, it's a season of longing and anticipation. And as I was thinking about this past week, I was thinking about how, how hope assumes something. When we hope for something, it assumes that the thing we hope for is lacking. We don't hope for things that we already have. We, we hope for the things that we don't have. I wonder what you're hoping for this holiday season. I know that you have lists. My kids made lists, right? Right? It's a mercy to the parents, actually, for them to make lists so you can have some sort of direction as you're trying to figure this all out. But those of us who are adults, we might have a thing or two on our list as well of something that we might be hoping for this holiday season. Well, last weekend, I was scouring the vast landscape of Amazon in search of the things that might make my family happy, hoping to find a few good deals on the weekend that Supposedly gives good deals. Lo and behold, I came across a great deal for something I really wanted. Now I know you're curious, what, what is it that makes this guy tick? What, what does he want? What, what is it that he saw on Amazon that got him excited? And, and I'll tell you, I'm not gonna withhold it from you. It was a pair of noise-canceling, over-the-ear headphones. <laughs> So you might be asking why, 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 Pastor Nick, why is that what you want? I'm not going to make any jokes about being a dad of four kids in the state of our home, but could it be that he's, he's a music junkie? He's just like, he's always up on the latest beats and has to have, you know, that, that sort of environment to listen to, or is he like one of those really antisocial people who turns on the noise canceling, and just walks through crowded areas as if no one else exists around him? No, it's neither of those the reason i want these earphones um is much more spiritual it's because i listen to sermons while i mow my lawn right so i listen to sermons while i mow my lawn and my lawnmower is loud it's really loud and i actually have a pair of noise-canceling headphones that my dad gave me 10 years ago i i I use every opportunity i can up here to talk about my dad 10 years ago i'm hopping on a plane to israel um, going back and forth as a missionary And my dad was singing the praises of these noise-canceling earphones he'd just bought, and uh, he let me try them out, and I was like, oh, wow, those are amazing. Those would be really nice for these long plane flights. So he hands them to me, and he says, here you go, just take them. And so I've had those headphones for 10 years now, and and the styrofoam or whatever it is around the ears, it it just decays over time to the point where now I, I mow my lawn, and I've got the volume all the way up, full blast. So like Alistair Begg is like screaming in my ear as I'm mowing the lawn, and I I still can't quite hear him. So I'm driving my lawnmower with the ear pushed up against my ear so I can try to make out what he's saying, which is the reason my lawn looks the way it does. (laughs) I'm still only catching every third word that he's saying, so my theology is getting worse. And so for the sake of all these things, my lawn, my soul, my theology, I see this deal for these earphones that I've been wanting for years, to be honest. To be really honest, I, I, I've been wanting them for years. I'm like, too much, I'm not going to get them. And here they are, 100 bucks off on Amazon. So I hope that I'll get them. And the reason I hope I'll get them is because I, I took that link, that Amazon link, and I forwarded it to Two people who still care about getting me presents, both who go by mom, mom and mom-in-law. As a mercy to them, because I know they're looking for something, they need ideas, so there you go. I sent it to them, I hope I get them. When we say Advent is a season of hope, what we are saying is that it is a season of longing for something that we don't already have. But immediately we might see a problem there as Christians. How is Advent a season of hope when Advent is leading up to the time when we remember Jesus' birth, his coming to earth? Hasn't Jesus already been born? Isn't he already here? How do we hope for something that we already have? Well, Psalm 2 helps us to address that question because there's more to Advent than just hoping for the messiah's birth and psalm 2 and many other prophecies about the coming messiah teaches us just that that we hope for more than just the messiah's appearance but the prophets of old hoped for when they looked forward to the messiah is actually the very thing that we still hope for today and we'll see that in psalm chapter 2. David begins this psalm with a question and an observation, both of which highlight that something was missing in David's day, something worth hoping for. So David begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In these first few verses, David describes a world that is at war. According to his observations, rage is the emotional climate of the day. Plots of rebellion are being whispered between the nations and their rulers. Sedition, the banding together and rising up against authority is their aim. And their rallying cry is freedom. The object of all this rage and rebellious plots and seditious aims is none other than God himself and his anointed king. That is who the nations hate. That is who they wish to be free from. In these opening verses, David describes a world that is at war with God, a war where humanity sees God as enemy number one, a world where God's rule is perceived to be bondage and where freedom is sought from him rather than being sought in him. In these opening verses, David describes a world in which something has gone missing, And what's gone missing is a right relationship between creatures and their creator. What's missing is peace between God and man. And in the place of peace, we find creatures who rebel against their creator and image bearers who aim to be free from the one whose image they bear. In writing all of this, David was describing his day, that's for sure, he's describing ours as well in fact he's describing all of human history from the moment when adam and eve rebelled against god in the garden and the rule that he had over them then humanity has been lost in a death spiral of rebellion and rage against their maker we live in a world that is at war with God, and the first three verses of Psalm 2 are playing out before our eyes every single day. So we see it in the organized oppression of Christians in modern day countries like China and Iran and North Korea. We see it in the rage that's all around us here in America against God's definitions of gender and marriage and love, and life, and when life begins. We live in a world where people not only disregard God's reign, they actually come together to plot against him in order to overthrow it. We live in a day when the enemies of God fund movements and create campaigns aimed at overthrowing any hint of his reign or influence on our our society past present, and future. Most recently, I heard of an individual who has now spent $422 million bankrolling the efforts to make gay marriage legal in all 50 states. We live in a world where rulers and authorities live as if God doesn't where corruption runs rampant, where bribery and dishonesty are the name of the game, where injustice rules the day. all and all, For all the disunity and discord and unrest that exists in our world today, Psalm 2 notes that there is unity in one thing. There is a coming together of tyrants and dictators for one thing, and that is to oppose God. This isn't just an out-there problem, is it? It's not just a problem that exists outside these doors with someone else. This is an in-here problem as well. If we're honest, I think we'll find that our hearts are guilty of this same rebellion, aren't they? This same rebellion is found in our reluctance to step off the throne of our lives and to let God be the one to guide the direction that they are taking it's found in our visceral reactions to, to Jesus' commands to love your enemy and to forgive those who have hurt you. This seditious heart is present in our quiet rebellion against Jesus' invitation to abide in me, as we always find another reason for why we just don't have time for that. It's displayed in the social media posts and impassioned conversations that reveal where our true political alliance is found, being to the human, earthly, political parties of today rather than to the kingdom of heaven. And in all of this, I want us to see that something is missing And what is missing is this right relationship between the creator and his creature. What is missing is an acknowledgement of God as God. What is missing is the truth that submitting to God's reign is not slavery. It's freedom. What is missing is peace between a loving God and those he created to live in his love. This is the lack. This is what's gone missing. This is what our world is without. And in large measure, this is what Psalm 2 is pointing out to us, that there is a lack. But Psalm 2 doesn't end there. It goes on to give us three reasons for why we can hope that the sad state of affairs described in these first few verses and experienced all around us will not continue indefinitely. And the first place David points us for hope is the hope found in God's laughter. So look at verse 4 with me now as we read the second stanza where God first speaks. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill." Now, before we look at these verses, I want you to remember how David began this psalm back in verse 1. He began it with a question. Not so much because he's actually wondering why humanity is rebelling against God, for that's an old story, as old as the Garden of Eden, as we have already said. He asks a question because he's incredulous at the audacity of humanity to rebel against their creator. The reason he's incredulous is because of his understanding of the one against whom they are rebelling. How could they think for a second that they could set themselves up against the creator of the universe and win? And to underline the audacity of such actions, he describes for us in the second stanza, God's response to rebellious humanity. So verse 4 begins with God's response He who sits in heaven. Notice it doesn't say he who stands. He who paces back and forth. He who wrings his hands in anxiety. No, he who sits in heaven. Sitting on his throne, unmoved, unfazed. And what is he doing? He laughs. There's a scene in the Star Wars movie, The Return of the Jedi, where a disguised Princess Leia comes into the home of Jabba the Hutt, demanding to be paid a bounty for the great Chewbacca, who she supposedly has captured and brought in. But Jabba doesn't agree to her requested amount. And when he asks her why he should pay so much, they bargain a little bit back and forth, why should he pay so much? The answer is because I'm holding a thermal detonator, right? We don't, what is that? It's gonna blow everything up, right? A bomb of some sort. It's a threat. It's an act of sedition against Jabba's great power in his own home. And what follows is one of laughs, uh, one of cinema's most iconic laughs. Can you hear it in your own head? The ho, 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 oh, ho, oh, oh, oh. right? And then he says something in, in Jabba speak. <laughs> That's how God responds to those who rebel against him. That's where the analogy ends. It really doesn't line up much more beyond that. (laughs) I think the very next thing he says is, I like scum like you or something like that. God laughs at those who challenge his authority, and there is much to be hoped for in that laughter. For behind that laughter of God is a heavenly Father who is not threatened, by the plots or schemes of marketing campaigns or the rage of the masses or the rebellion of mighty rulers and dictators and kings. Behind this laughter is a heavenly father who remains unthreatened by the plots of the likes of Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. He remains unfazed by the plans of planned parenthood or the new sex education in the public schools. He's unmoved by advertising campaigns aimed at destroying a biblical understanding of marriage or gender or life. And he's also not dethroned by the rebellious thoughts and impulses of our own sinful hearts. In the face of each of these threats, he simply laughs, and that ought to be a hope to us. For it speaks of his sovereign power over every opposition, every person, every nation, or every king who might dare to set themselves up against him. He is unmoved and unmovable. He is our sovereign God. But as much hope as his laughter may bring us, it is not his only response in these verses. If all God did was laugh, we might wonder if he takes such opposition lightly or if he lacks the power or perhaps even the goodness to do something about it. Neither of these could be further from the truth. God takes these matters very seriously, and he's very capable of handling them as the following verses reveal. That he takes these matters seriously is seen in verses 4 and 5 when David says he will hold these rebels in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Behind God's indignant laughter is a fury terrible to behold. We don't like to talk about God's fury that much, do we? I had the pleasure of going to an apologetics conference with our students a few weekends ago, and it was, it was truly a terrific conference, very well done. But I went to one breakout session on the topic of hell, and I was shocked as I sat and Listen to the speaker who, who explained why hell must exist for 45 minutes, but not once did he mention God's wrath or his fury against those who challenge his reign. It's not a popular topic, but our passage is one of many that make it clear how much God hates the rebellion of his creatures. In his holiness, Psalm 2 makes it clear that such actions will not be ignored by God, they will not go unpunished, there will be wrath to pay. The million dollar question being, who is going to pay it? Perhaps it's no coincidence that the very next verse introduces God's chosen king. As God speaks and says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Where verses 4 and 5 show how seriously God takes the rebellion of humanity, verse 6 introduces the action that God will take to address it. And that action is bound up in the establishment of his king. So who is this king? Well, in David's day, as he wrote this psalm, the king would have been David himself. But even David, even as he was writing this psalm, he knew that such lofty language pointed to someone beyond him. Someone he refers to as the Lord's anointed in verse 2. A term anointed in Hebrew, that is Mashiach, which would go on to be transliterated in English to Messiah. David knew because Nathan the prophet had told him that one would come after him and in his lineage who would reign forever. And it is to that king that David points us here in Psalm 2. Now, being back in David's day, this was a hope of the people of Israel. They were looking for this anointed one, this anointed king who would come in the line of David. And it's likely that Psalm 2 would have been read at the enthronement of each successive king in David's line. But eventually what happened is the line of kings ended and israel went into exile the king that israel hoped for was no longer within view and they longed for a day when god would raise up a messiah who would deliver them from their enemies and rule the world it's to this king that god refers in verse 6 and We now have the privilege of knowing being this side of Jesus Christ and because God has clearly revealed it that this king is not still coming in the future but is one who has already come and that is the King Jesus Christ born to a virgin named Mary in the town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Jesus is God's chosen king. He is the king that God established once and for all as his chosen method to deal with the rebellious humanity that stands up against him. And it is to this king that the third stanza of the psalm now turns its attention. In verse 7, we read, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in this third stanza, we add to the hope found in a God who laughs at his enemies, the hope of God's anointed king. To the hope of an all-powerful God, we add the hope of his perfect plan to counter the enemy's rebellion. And that hope is bound up in God's anointed king and in a decree that God has made to this king, as we see in verse 7 there. A decree by which he affirms three things will be true of his anointed. First, in verse 7 he affirms that this king has been appointed by God himself. You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you. Now behind This decree in the time of David when he wrote it was the understanding that the king of Israel was like a son of God. Not in a divine sense, but in a representative sense. Because God had revealed that the people of Israel in Exodus 22 were his firstborn son. And so it was natural to call the king a son of God as a representative of the people before God. And that's likely behind the idea here as David wrote this psalm, this decree. It was a declaration that was to be made of each successive king on the day when they were enthroned. You are now the Son of God, representing Israel before God. Today I have begotten you in the sense of today you have been enthroned as that representative. But David, helped along by the Holy Spirit, said more than he realized at the time when he wrote these words. For the king who would ultimately fulfill these words would be the son of God, not just in name, but in nature. We see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this verse time and again in the New Testament. In fact, most commentators see Psalm 2 as being behind every affirmation of Jesus' sonship. So I'll mention four to you. At Jesus' birth, the angel, announces to Mary that he would be called Emmanuel, God with us. At Jesus' baptism, a voice rings out from heaven that says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, those very same words are said once again, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And to it is added, listen to him. And then Paul, in writing about Jesus' death and resurrection, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. In each of these places, we see echoes and fulfillment of Psalm 2. Jesus is the Son, begotten by God, come to rule the nations. so first and foremost we have that he is appointed by god himself second this king will have god's full support we read in verse eight the father's decree to his son is that he need only to ask and god will deliver the nations into his son's hands he even speaks of the nations as being his son's inheritance his heritage they're already his waiting until the day when God delivers them over to him. And how appropriate that is as we see throughout Scripture the testimony that Jesus is the architect of creation. The nations were created through him and for him. They are his inheritance. He will rule them one day. The third thing we see about this anointed king is that this king will be endowed with God's unrivaled power. As we read in verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Just as the nations pose no threat to God himself, so they will pose no threat to his anointed. They will be like clay pottery before a rod of iron. They stand no chance before the Lord's anointed. The ultimate fate of all who continue to make war with God is to crumble before his son. Earlier, we asked the question, what are we supposed to hope for during the Advent season? If hope is based on something we lack, and if Advent anticipates the birth of Christ, how do we hope for something we already have? Psalm 2 helps us to address that question because it makes clear the fact that when David and his contemporaries were hoping for the Messiah, and what we are still hoping for today was not simply the Messiah's appearance, but his reign. They weren't just hoping that he would come and visit them, they were hoping that he would come and set up his kingdom. They weren't just looking for a heavenly visit to the people of God, they were looking forward to the day when the whole earth would join the people of God in worshiping his king. A day when those who refused and fought against the king and his kingdom would once and for all be crushed and subdued. A day when all creation would enter into an eternal age of peace with God following their creator that is what David is writing about here in Psalm 2. That's what is still missing today. That is what we long for and hope for during this Advent season. So we can enter into the hope of Advent because the very thing that the Old Testament saints hope for is a thing that we hope for today. Now in saying that we hope for it today, we're saying that something is missing in christ's reign but we want to be careful not to suggest that we're in the exact same place as david was when he wrote this psalm for the plan of salvation of god's salvation has been gloriously moved along between now and then for god has sent his son hasn't he he has sent his king and his king has established his reign one of the reasons why paul speaks of Jesus' resurrection in Psalm 2 terms is because it's understood that his resurrection is also his enthronement. Jesus is enthroned. He is ruling and his kingdom is established. But what remains unrealized is the full acceptance of Christ's reign by every individual here on earth. Would you agree? We are in what theologians call the already but not yet, stage of Christ's reign. Already his reign has been established. Already the king has been identified. Already the king is on his throne. But we have not yet seen the full establishment of his reign over every people and all opposition. And we might ask why. Why, in Christ's coming, was not the whole earth made to submit before him? Why weren't all his enemies crushed when he came the first time? To answer that, we go now to the final stanza of Psalm chapter 2. Verse 10 begins, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If in reading Psalm Psalm 2, we stopped at verse 9, if we ended at the third stanza and didn't get to this last one, we might wonder if God is really all that good. Because it could seem like God, in the face of tyrants and dictators who rebel against him, has established his own tyrant, his own dictator, to put them in their place. It may seem that God's plan is simply to meet force with more force, but this stanza dispels any hint of the possibility that that is the case, and it reveals the reason why God did not crush his enemies when he first sent Jesus to earth. For in this last stanza, the final word to rebellious rebellious humanity is not a threat of their doom, but an offer of peace. Though his power is unmatched and his king's future reign unquestioned, we see that God's character is one of mercy and grace. To the raging masses comes an invitation, and the invitation is this. Serve the Lord and submit to his Son, and you will be spared from God's wrath. And though submission is the only hope, of the raging nations, the way they are encouraged to receive this offer speaks volumes about the God who gives it. They're invited in verse 11 to rejoice, to rejoice even as they tremble before God. And then in verse 12, they're invited to kiss the son. Such an intimate action, communicating not just their acceptance of his reign, But even their welcoming and love for it, even as they seek to avoid his wrath. If this passage were just an ancient Near Eastern text between kings and David's day, we might say these are empty words meant to further humiliate the ones being called to submit to their enemy king. But when they describe our heavenly father and his anointed one, Jesus Christ, we know they are anything but empty. When they describe our Heavenly Father, we know that they are filled with good news. Here is the gospel in the Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Christ. They are filled with grace, inviting rebels like us to submit to Christ, not only in word, but also in heart and emotion with joy and trembling. To joyfully receive and follow and obey Christ for who He is, God's appointed King, chosen to lead His creatures back to their Creator. And the final line of the psalm only confirms that this is the case, as the rebellious masses are promised not just peace, but blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge. In Him, How sweet is our God. To the offer of peace is added the offer of blessing, and that is so indicative of who we serve. He does not seek our submission to satisfy his own pride. He does it because he seeks our blessing. He wants what is best for us, what is best for us, what is best for you on this day is to submit yourself to the reign of King Jesus, our gentle and good King. Psalm 2 can be summarized by saying, while there is no refuge from God's King, there is refuge in Him. And there is great hope in that summary for us this Advent season. Well, we began this morning by noting that Advent is a season of hope. We have our candles here, and the first candle is the hope candle. The second, as Pastor Worley pointed us to, is the peace candle. Advent is a season of hope, and that hope assumes something is lacking. And Psalm 2 helps us to see that while the hope for Messiah, God's anointed king, has already appeared in Jesus Christ, what we still hope for today is the establishment, the establishment, of his kingdom and in a world where the nations still rage and where rulers still plot and where rebellious intentions still reign supreme within our hearts, we hope along with David for the day when Christ comes into his kingdom and his benevolent rule is experienced by all. This is really good news for us today. It's really good news, because while we hope for it, it's also available to us to enter into today. You remember how I told you that I saw something I was hoping to get for Christmas? Well, I have a confession to make. It was purchased for me already. I know that because the person who purchased from it for, it, uh, it for me, they don't live nearby, and so they, they just had it shipped to my house. makes it a little bit easier. It already came, and I got it, and I opened it up. I saw it's in the box there. What do you think I should do with it? I'll tell you what I did with it. All right here. Oh. Right? When something that you are desperately hoping for is presented to you, you don't have to put it on the shelf for another day. You don't have to wait for Christmas to open up this hope. God is offering you an answer to what is missing in your life. And what is missing is peace with him. He offers that to each and every one of us, and he has made a way for us to accept it. And the way we accept it is through the finished work of his son, the anointed king, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who paid the wrath of God on your behalf. He took it on your behalf. And you have the opportunity to accept the hope of a right relationship with God. And I want to encourage us in three ways to enter into that hope this Advent season. The first thing i want to encourage us to do is to do what psalm 2 is calling the kings and the raging nations to do at the last stanza there and that is submit to god's king submit to god's king jesus when he came to earth he came not with a rod of iron he came as a little baby gentle and lowly he would be described later on And he came with an offer that any who would repent of their sins and believe in him as God's anointed king would be saved. And that offer is still true for each and every one of us today. For those of us who are here today who have taken that offer and put it on the shelf, can I encourage you, today is the day to open that gift. Whether you are one of our younger kids, our students, one of, someone in our youth group, or if you're a newer member, you're just attending with a friend, this is the first time you're hearing about these things, or maybe you've known about them for a long time, this is a gift that has to be opened, It has to be received. Don't let us sit on the shelf collecting dust any longer. Submit yourself to God's chosen king through repentance and faith. For the rest of us who have already submitted ourselves to God's reign, I would encourage you, know that this is an ongoing work, isn't it? There are dark corners of our hearts that still rebel, that are still in active rebellion against God's anointed. And so I would encourage you this Advent season to submit your whole heart to God as he reveals those areas that you are not. And submission to him. So submit to God's king. Second, I would encourage you to extend his kingdom. Be at work in extending his kingdom. So if our hope this Advent season is to see God's king's reign established on earth, know that you are part of that. You participate in that. In fact, Jesus takes up the words of Psalm chapter 2 when he says in Matthew 28... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? And the anointed king. And then what does he say? He looks at his disciples and he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The nations are his inheritance, but he calls us to be the ones to bring them into his kingdom. Know that when we do that, we are entering into the hope of Advent. The hope of seeing Christ's reign extended and established here on earth. Finally, trust. Trust in the God who promises he is able to bring this about. We live in a day where there is much rage rage and plots and schemes and opposition to our King and against his people, us, the church. But Psalm 2 promises us that God laughs in the face of such opposition. Trust that he will bring it about in his good timing. And to refer to the book that we just finished studying in Revelation, we see further allusions to Psalm 2, where we read in Revelation 12, verse 5, that there was a woman who gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron that her child was caught up to god and to his throne and then in revelation 19 we read that this child would come again riding a white horse and from his mouth would come a sword with which he would strike down the nations and it says he will rule them with a rod of iron god will bring about this vision may it be established first in our hearts and then in the hearts of our neighbors As we trust in him to bring it about this advent season let's pray merciful god we thank you for the words of david and for the grand vision that is contained within this psalm we thank you for the strength and the power and the unmovable nature that is present within it we also thank you for the grace and the mercy And the offer and the invitation that is there too i pray today that you would help us help those who have not received that offer to come into your kingdom this day not to let it sit on the shelf any longer but to take that gift and to open it i pray for those of us who follow you already who have already opened that gift, that you would be at work through your Holy Spirit rooting out the dark, rebellious corners of our heart. I pray that you would empower us as a church to be a church that so longs to see this hope realized that we give ourselves often with energy to the work of spreading the good news of the kingdom of God. And I pray that you would root deep down in our hearts a deep trust in the God who laughs at opposition and who promises that when the time is right, he will establish Christ's reign over all the earth. To that day we look forward. In Jesus' name, amen.